Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we'll be discussing the importance of providing others with opportunity. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit. He is the president of media sales at BET Networks and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Today, we're sitting down with Khadija Sharif Drinkard to discuss her 15 plus years in the corporate entertainment industry, how she got her start in the field, and the perspective she holds on giving back and creating pathways for others. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Lewis Carr, and welcome to the Waymaker Podcast. And today, we have the pleasure of having Khadija Sharif Drinker as I guess. Uh, she's a good friend of mine. Uh, I've known her for a long time and she's had an amazing journey and career. So Khadija, welcome to the Waymaker Podcast. Thank you, Lewis. I'm so happy. I'm happy to be here. It's a pleasure and an honor and I'm excited to be on this platform with you. How have you been doing? I've been really good. I've been transitioning, as you know, to my new job. So it's been a lot of fun, a lot of learning, and a lot of exciting things to tackle. So Khadija is a former Viacom CBS uh, associate. Uh, now she's working for our competitor, Disney. <laughs> so uh, congratulations, uh, Khadija, on your new position. Uh, tell us about that. What is that new position? Sure. So I'm currently I'm heading up the business affairs department for ABC News um, as senior vice president. Um, and it's been a, an amazing time um, just transitioning into that role as a person who had been spending many, spent many time, much of, I should say, much of my career in business and legal affairs and coming over now into business affairs strictly. Um, so it's been an adjustment, but a really good one and um, learning lots of new skills and also able to stretch myself and use some of the old skills um, to help build the business further. So, so tell us, what is a typical day like for you? Well, um, you know, so a part of my job is not only sort of doing all the deals and making sure that, you know, we have, um, you know, agreements in place for the people who you see on air, but also the people who are behind the scenes who create stories, the producers, et cetera, the directors, but also helping to build the business on the long form side. So we're doing a lot of business actually at this point with Hulu and Disney Plus, um, doing a lot of documentaries and feature films. And so this is a new foray for us on the ABC News side. So that's actually been an amazing uh, time for me to learn some new things that I haven't had a chance to quite do yet. Um, and also some things that were on my bucket list, if you will. Great. So Khadija, tell us about your, your, your childhood that sort of inspired you to want to be a lawyer. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in Harlem, New York, in, in the Manhattanville projects just above 125th Street in Broadway. Um, so I, I was um, a child of the movement in many ways. Right. I grew up um, in, a, in a place and at a time where. Well, which movement, Khadija? We've had oh. many. Well, we've had, we've had many, but I've been a part of many too. So I was born into the nation of Islam. Um, we made a conversion to Islam in 1975. Um, my parents were really involved in, in activists um, and a number of movements in the city um, of New York. Uh, I also um, spent a lot of time as a young person in even junior high school and high school as an activist myself, learning how to advocate for my own education. I went to public school for most of my life. 
Um, and I just found that my educational experiences were not what they could have been. I thought early on, I knew that I deserved more. And I would often see my teachers who came in from other parts of the city or Jersey who, you know, barely wanted to teach us, quite frankly, um, went back home to their white picket fences. And I, I recognized that there were things that I needed to advocate for for myself. So I would often bring my mother in. Um, I would often fight for the chance to have advanced classes. And the reality is, is that I did a lot of reading on my own. My mom took us to the bookstore often or the library. And I learned about Shirley Chisholm and Barbara Jordan, two famous African-American lawyers, who one of whom, as you know, Shirley Chisholm, ran for office. She was the first woman to run for office in 1972. She inspired me greatly. Um, and I recognize, and having read her book and read her story, um, I recognized that there were things that were challenges for people who had it even more difficult than I had it, quite frankly. And so I had really no excuse, despite the fact that I grew up on welfare, despite the fact that we were in the projects, there were things I just would not make excuses for. And I had to use that impetus and that energy that I had, um, and even to some extent that anger, I would say, um, and redirect it so that I use it in a way that would, I would, you know, study extra time at night. I would stay up all night sometimes and make sure that I understood what the material was. And I would push myself in ways that I, that really didn't give me a, a, a chance to get myself off the hook. If I failed something, I tried harder and harder. And I, and I, I ended up winning over people who really didn't champion me, quite frankly, because I just wouldn't, I wouldn't, I was relentless, quite frankly, in trying to get my family and my and my myself actually to a place that I thought we deserve to be. So from my early ages of understanding like the Shirley Chisholm's and Barbara Jordan's of the world, I recognized that being a lawyer actually gave people a different way of thinking. And it also gave us an opportunity to advocate for people in ways that perhaps we wouldn't be able to without those kind of skills. So that attracted me to the law at a really early age. And since I was nine, I always wanted to be a lawyer. Well, you must be super excited about the new vice president of the United States of America. I am. I'm very proud of her. Yes. Very excited. So uh, how did you get into entertainment law? Funny story. So I actually went to law school to become a human rights lawyer. Um, and I was really involved in politics as well. And I had an internship. Actually, you know, between college and law school, I worked at Nickelodeon. I was at Viacom and I was doing talent um, booking and getting people and traveling with folks, getting people on air and developing talent, quite honestly. And then I decided to go to law school. I knew I was going to law school after about a year or so. Um, one of my mentors said, if you ever want to come back and just try out entertainment law, you know, come and try it out with us here. And I was like, oh, I don't know. But I gave it a try my second summer in law school. And I really was moved by what happens with media and how people are affected by media and particularly people of color, right? Like this is a, this, this, our community is a community that actually not just looks at what's on screen, but we actually emulate, we create, we, they actually emulate us, quite frankly. So I thought, you know, it was it was a powerful way to help shape the narrative Um that we wanted that I thought was we should be creating for people of color in particular. And I that's why I was attracted to work at BET for a very long time, because I really thought that we had a way to shape the stories um, to be, create more positive narratives for our people. So basically, you've taken your uh, academics and your experience and you've still been able to follow your passion by impacting people's lives. On That's both right. sides, on both sides. Was that intentional? Oh, yes. Yes. Everything I do 
I do with purpose. I'm, I'm intentionally thinking about the kinds of things that I'm involved in, the kinds of jobs that I take, the, the, what, what impact I'll be able to have in a particular sphere or place. Um, and I really want to be super specific about what my end goal is, right? How do I help people? How do I bring something to the table that might not have been something that they already had? Um, so I am always trying to be intentional about the work and I'm never really trying to follow the, the waves, if you will, or follow other people. I'm always thinking about what's on my list to check off. So we've talked about the the, the good part of, of your, your journey and career. Let's talk about some of the challenges. Challenges. Yes. So what have been some of the obstacles that you've had to face uh, uh, during your journey? Well, the first thing I would say is that I didn't come to um, entertainment law in, in, from the beginning as a person who went to a law firm. The path that one normally has to take is that you have to go to a law firm, typically, I would say, and spend about over three to five years or so at a firm. And then if you want to come in-house, you'll try to get make your way in-house somehow. But I actually recognized from early on when I was in law school that there was a different path that I wanted to take. So I created a new path for myself. I went through a process and, um, by applying to a program that Viacom had at that point called the Management Associate Program that allowed me to basically embed myself into the company and have a training happen, a training program happen around me for about a year, a year and a half. Um, the, the typical program was that I was supposed to rotate for four different departments, and I chose not to. I decided that I would ask them instead if I could stay in business affairs and allow those people to come to me, and I could actually have a rooting in that department and understand all the issues. So I was the first person that actually had the opportunity to get placed into a full-time position from that program many years ago because of me thinking differently about the process and what needed to really happen. Um, so that was my first challenge because it was hard to get into the program, first of all, but it was also hard to get them to think that I could actually do this work without having gone to a firm full-time. Um, the other thing is that I think that, you know, I've worked really hard in my job, but I, promotions didn't always come, as you know, Lewis, when when they when I thought they should, right? Um, I think that, you know, we don't always necessarily get the recognition that we think we should get at the time we think we should get it. So you have to really be purposeful and intentional about um, being, I would say, not only um, super resilient, but also being focused because sometimes we can be challenged by the distractions around us. So I had to really say to myself when things didn't turn out the way I wanted them to turn out for different opportunities for me, that I was going to be, you know, recommitting myself to the goals that I had and figure out different ways in which to, to, to accomplish them. And I think a lot of that is like, you know, if I didn't get promoted at a particular time, what would I do? Would I sulk about it? No, I could talk about it. I could look at the things that didn't go so well and then recommit myself to areas that I thought I need to improve in perhaps. But really, ultimately, my goal was to give people no opportunity to say no at some point, ultimately, you know, having checked all the boxes, if you will. So, this podcast is called Waymaker for a reason, mm -hmm. uh, because I believe that none of us uh, got to where we are today without some Waymakers. Uh, I've had 19 in my career uh, who have done something drastically to sort of change the course and the direction of where I was going. Let's talk about some Waymakers in your life. When you look back and you see where you are today, Talk about some of the waymakers and what do they do to help you get to where you are? 
Well, I would start with my mom, first of all, because I think my mom was a way maker from the very beginning. She was a champion of mine and still is, quite honestly, um, you know. I don't think I call anybody else first sometimes, maybe my husband, but my mom as well, just, just kind of championing me on things when I'm, if I'm nervous about something. Um, so she was always a way maker. She always thought that I could be better than, than I was. And um, even when I was really good, she always said, you can still be better. Um, so I, I, I appreciate her um, immensely in my life. I would also say that I had so many teachers, actually, and principals that really uh, poured a lot into me, who believed in me. I had Mr. Lewis in eighth and ninth grade. I had Mrs. Griffith, who was my teacher. She was my double Dutch coach, actually, who, be, who like adopted me and took me home on the weekend. Hold on, Khadija. You had a double Dutch coach. Yes, because I was on the so, double Dutch team. So first of all, that's, that, that, that tells me you were pretty good, all right? I was good. I was good. <laughs> I've never yes. heard of anybody who had a double Dutch coach. Well, let me just tell you, Mrs. Griffith actually was the was the coach for the, 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 the McDonald's double Dutch champions team from Harlem. So she trained me and she trained them. And so we actually, were, we were competing like crazy. Yeah, she was really good. And she so, couldn't. So that 32, 42, 52, 62, yes. you had that down, huh? Yes. <laughs> we had speed ropes. We had tricks. We had everything. Cartwheels, in and out, you name it. Yeah. <laughs> see, see, I learned something new all the time. <laughs> Yeah, but she was amazing um, and still is. She's still, I don't, she's not still coaching, but she still tells us how we need to keep ourselves together. Um, God bless her. So, so she, she adopted me. She took me home on the weekends, actually, um, in, in, to Inglewood, New Jersey, and let me see something outside of my projects. She, she said she wanted me to see what other people live like, how other people live. She wanted me to see what was available to me outside of my block. And so that meant a, a lot to me. It meant really the world. I got to see things. And then when I got to high school, I had Dr. Lottie Taylor, who was my principal, who said to us every morning as she met us at the front door that every child will learn, can learn, and must learn in this school every single day. It was that was the motto every day that you heard when you walked in that door at April at Randolph Campus High School. And she took kids from the poorest areas of the city and poured into them all kinds of encouragement. And all of us end up going to 99% of us went to four-year colleges on scholarship. And so that was the story of Dr. Lottie Taylor. And then I had people like you, Lewis, right? Who, you know. When you get older, you still need that same kind of encouragement. You still need to have somebody who you can talk to, who can pour things into you, who can tell you, relax, it's okay, be direct, you know, don't, you know, we need that still. So I think, you know, you know, you're a way maker for me as well. You know, let you. you're, you're quite welcome. And I tell you that, um, I tell you that all the time, but I really, I, I do mean it. And I, and I think that it can't be understated how people still need mentors and sponsors in their life, even as they get to be older. Um, and it may be even more so in some ways. So you've had several waymakers. How has that motivated you to be a waymaker for others? Yeah. Well, you listen, I don't think there's a bigger job um, that's more important besides parenting my kids than being a waymaker for other people, because I have been the beneficiary of so much from so many people. So many good deeds have come my way because of what people have done and given to me and taught me um, that I'm always I don't turn anybody down. I always make time for every single young person and even an older person who comes to me and wants to talk, even if it's just 15 or 20 minutes of advice or 
feedback or something that I can offer to them, a good word. Um, it's so important because we really are a mirror image of, of each other. And if I can actually give back something, and I hope I do actually, I hope I give more than I took. And, and that's really my goal ultimately, to pay back more than I actually took. But I'm always inspired to, to give back to others because I do think it is in true, in fact, the rent that we pay to be here on this earth. Um, as a wise person has said to all of us. <laughs> so, so tell me this, mm-hmm. what advice would you give the young Khadijah uh, coming out of college right now mm. or currently in college right now? What advice would you give to? Young um, I think, yeah, I think I would say that this is really a marathon, not a sprint. I think a lot of times, you know, when you have, really big goals and you're super focused on, you know, getting things done really fast in life, you sometimes lose focus and we don't always enjoy the journey. So I think I would tell myself that it really is a marathon and that, you know, it doesn't all happen overnight, but it really takes that resilience and that recommitment um, and that reimagining like what it is. Sometimes things don't happen for us because they're not supposed to happen for us. And so, um, So we have to pivot and we have to think, okay, so what path am I supposed to take next then? And I think sometimes, you know, what they say, rejection is protection. So we have to understand that the things that we want are not always the things that are best for us. And I think that those are the things I had to learn um, as I got a little bit older and a little bit more wise that I probably didn't quite understand as a young person. Same question Mm -hmm. to young women in corporate America trying to climb the corporate ladder. Yeah, I think, you know, I would say, um, because I say this to myself every day, too, I think we have to protect ourselves, right? We have to, first and foremost, we have to be true to ourselves and we have to protect ourselves. And authenticity is super important, right? Who we are as people is more than who we are in a job. And we have to make sure that the job doesn't define us. We define the job. The job is a part of what we do. I'm not, you know, a lawyer and that's all I am. I'm not a business person. That's all I am. There's a lot more that's complex about me that's outside of the role that I play in my professional life. And so I always worry when people get super focused on like, you know, they become the job or the job defines them. I've never let the jobs define me because the worth is not in the physical title or the position or the office or whatever the salary is. The worth is in what you bring to it and how you see things and what you offer. So I would say, you know, to women of color in particular um, who have to really fight every day for the small wins to protect yourself, but to be thoughtful about um, ensuring that you're not defining yourself based upon someone else's value system and that you, in fact, understand who you are separate and apart from all that you're doing so that you don't get caught up in, in that trick bag of like, you know, you are X or you are Y or you're worth X or you're worth Y. So that, that's, that's my piece of advice, I would say, that I've always tried to remind myself of on a regular basis. Uh, in 2020, Khadijah, young people around the world mm-hmm. woke us up, uh, made us aware that racism still existed in America, mm-hmm. that there was social injustice and inequities. Uh, they really did a great job. We ought to applaud them for that. But what is the role of people like you and I who sit in these corporate suites? What is our role in helping Uh, bring equality and and fairness to the corporate world. What should we be doing as corporate executives? 
Well, you know, first and foremost, um, the work of equality and, and equity and inclusion and diversity has to happen on all fronts and all platforms. So while we have people in the streets, while we have people in the boardrooms, we have people on the sidewalks or wherever they may sit, we have to make sure that as corporate executives, we're asking of our leadership and ourselves the same things that we're asking outside of officials who might be in government or other places. So we have to challenge ourselves more. We have to ask the right kinds of questions. I think we have to push ourselves um, Particularly, as you know, I'm I'm a huge advocate of doing such um, and making sure that we do not settle for the okie doke. Right? It's not just about writing a check, but it's about creating pathways of opportunity for people who look like you and I to excel, um, and opportunities for people who we know are, 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 are can achieve and also who are deserving of them. I think you know. Also, the other thing I would say about um, corporate executives, we can't be complacent. We can't act as if we're removed from the challenges that other people face. Because I think sometimes, you know, we think we've done our part by supporting the NAACP or the Urban League and those kinds of things. And that that's one step. But we also have to be making sure that we're actually supporting each other inside of the hallways, inside of the boardrooms, um, being resources for each other, opening the door, creating pathways so that young people and people who are who are, might be um, marginalized typically, who haven't had opportunities typically are allowed to excel. So there's a lot of work that still has to be done. I think that there's more work that has to be done in corporate America in some areas than there have to be done in some other industries, quite frankly. And if you look at the number of CEOs who look like you and I, the numbers are abysmal. So we're nowhere near where we need to be in terms of leadership. We might hit certain levels, but we certainly have not nearly um, got, gotten close to the barometer of success that we need to get close to as a people. So you are president of Beasley. I am chairwoman of Beasley now. Yes, I chairwoman. am. Chairwoman. Chairwoman. I was okay. president, though. I was, I was president before. You're right. So, so you got a promotion, all right? I got a promotion. <laughs> so tell us, what is Beasley and what is their role and, and how do you lead and guide that? Yes. So Beasley stands for the Black Entertainment and Sports Lawyers Association, as you know, because you were one of our extinct speakers last year, the previous conference in 2019. Um, and what we are is an organization of attorneys, executives, and professionals in media, entertainment, and sports. Um, that This organization was established over 40 years ago. And the purpose of the organization was actually to create um, an avenue for people like us to get into the business. Because much like the Jewish community, people were keeping us out. We didn't have African-American attorneys or executives at firms and other places that could actually advocate for us. So they had to create their own organization so that they could share information. Um, even Deborah Lee, she got her start really by talking to all the Beasley people. She used Beasley as a resource to help guide her career as a lawyer, as a first lawyer for BET. So we, we've seen that there are a lot of people that we know um, who have benefited from the work of Beasley? Beasley has always been an organization that has fought for civil rights. It looks a little different because we're not necessarily like you know the NAACP, but we are fighting for people to have access to jobs um, where they can actually uh, provide the kinds of ex um, resources and professional support for people. So we provide internships, as you know, we provide scholarships to our young people, and we also support 
lots of other initiatives with partner organizations. So the NBA, which is the National Bar Association, made up of a lot of African-American attorneys as well. And we're constantly working to ensure that we're diversifying the industry and making sure that we're inclusive in, in a number of areas. Right now, one of our major pushes is that we are working with a lot of corporate de um, departments across a number of, I would say, Fortune 500 companies, to ensure that we have access to their job bank. We understand what jobs are available. We're pushing our people to get into these roles and also um, working with them to create a pipeline for internships for young people so that they have a chance to get into the roles at some point if they can't get into them now, because we know that internships lead to jobs in the end. That's great. So I want to turn now personal. Mm -hmm. So you are a wife, uh, you are a mom, uh, you are a corporate executive. Define balance for you. What does that mean? Does that exist? I don't know if that exists, but what I will say that's, is... That's why I said define it for you, because I think everybody has their own interpretation and definition of that. Yes, yes. So I would say for me, balance... Um, well, you know, look, this is what I tell my family. I tell my family that some days I may not be the best wife or mom, quite frankly, because I, I might be super committed to a few other things and I have to really adjust what my, where my time goes. And sometimes at work, I'll say, you know what, though, I got to, to deal with like some other things. I have to take care of my kids for a minute. Right. So I think I think it really depends on what the day is, what the week is, quite frankly, what's happening in my life during this COVID period. Really, the one thing I will say, despite all of the challenges that we've seen, COVID has given us a gift of hopefully family time where you can see your children, you can see your spouses and you can be with them in a way that even if it's like a few minutes, you can talk to them about things throughout the day that you probably would not have had a chance to talk to them about. So I really, I don't know if I really ever had balance per se, but I try to balance um, my priorities as they as they come up and um, <laughs> do the best I can on a day-to-day -day basis. Because it, it, is, it is hard, I will not lie. It is definitely hard, but it is doable, right? And I think the one thing I learned early on is that you, you can have it all, but just not all at the same exact time. And you have to figure out like what the priorities are for that moment. Thank you. Uh, now, there's been a, a awakening and awareness mm -hmm. about the conversation that parents have with their children. Yeah. What is the conversation you're having with your children during this unprecedented time of COVID-19 and racial inequalities in this country? What does that conversation sound like? Yeah, that conversation, and you know, it's interesting. It has been ongoing. I mean, I think I've had the conversation before COVID, but I think I feel like before COVID and before the racial reckoning, we've always talked about, you know, the challenges that young black girls have. My young, I have two young daughters, um, 115, 117. And um, and we talk frankly about the challenges they have, you know, particularly going to PWIs, predominantly white institutions, um, and being one of few in the in, in the environment. Um, but I think the, the talk that we've been having even more recently is, you know, about how they feel, like how they, how you know, you don't recognize how much this all affects them in some ways, but how they feel about what is being said, what is happening, the images that they're seeing, and really how do they respond? Because the thing is that, you know, 
when you have young men, you'll say, look, you know, make sure I learned all the stuff that young men learn these days, right? You know, don't talk back to the police, you know, keep your hands in such and such a way, you know, all that stuff. I have to talk to them about all that stuff too, right? Who are you in a car with? Don't reach for the glove compartment, you know, stay still. All that stuff is the stuff we talk about too. But I think it's also about how do you take all of this that's happening around you and what, how do you process it? What do you do with it, right? Um, how do you utilize it so that you don't feel devalued or dehumanized because a part of it too is a lot of the images that they're seeing on TV, a lot of what they've been told by what happened to Breonna Taylor and other play, and other people that we know, so the Sandra Blands, is that our lives don't fully matter. So I think a part of it is really re, um, re-bolstering them to keep feeding into them the sense of purpose and the sense of wealth uh, uh, and, and value. I think that's important for me as a Black woman to make sure that my Black daughters feel that they are loved, that they are valued, and that they are deserving, more importantly, of all of this, what this life has to offer to them. So that's been the talk that I've been trying to have on a regular basis. So how do we get young people mm-hmm. to realize their value at a young age when the system and the environment consistently tries to divide them? How do we get them to sort of break through that and see their own value and how much they can contribute to society, their communities and the world at large? How do we get them to really understand and see their value and how they can be major contributors in this country? Well, see, that's the work that you and I have to do, right? Because we we can't rely on teachers to, to some extent, not all the time, right? Governments and, and, and folks, you know, who are outside of our homes or outside of our communities, quite frankly. Sometimes maybe the person's not in your house, but they're, they are a family member. They have, they've adopted you in essence um, in the neighborhood. So that's the job that we have to make sure that every young child um, across this nation and in the world, quite frankly, um, but particularly our kids, know that they are valued, know that they, uh, they they know their history first and foremost, right? I think a part of it is the history, right? How do, who, who is teaching young people about the history of our people and what we've already gone through? And that, you know, and that they come from a rich lineage of people who have fought and, and, and suffered and, and overcome. And that's the thing, These, that's what they have to know. Because when you know that you, you come from that cloth, then you can do anything. That's what I knew as a young kid. That history helped me recognize that my circumstances may have been different or maybe a little difficult, but guess what? There was a, there was a lot of people who had way more difficult circumstances than I did, quite frankly. And so I took a trip when I was in uh, college to South Africa. David Dinkins asked me to come with him, accompany, accompany him to meet Nelson Mandela on this trip. And I never forget, I got off the plane and, um, tall gentleman, like presidential looking. And I'm like, wow, that's Nelson Mandela. He's waiting for us on the tarmac. We get down, come down the plane and people, you know, deplane one at a time. And Dinkins comes down first with Mrs. Joyce. And I'm one of three young people on the trip. And then David Dinkins introduces me and I look up and I never forget. And I'm shaking his hand and I'm like, oh my gosh. And he's like, welcome home. Welcome home. You're so young to be here. We're so happy to have you. And I'm sitting here thinking this man's been 27 and a half years in jail. I have no excuse. I can't even go home and give an excuse about anything. And here he stood as dignified and refined and president. He wasn't the president, by the way, yet. We were helping him. He wasn't even the president at that point. He was running the next year. But literally... 
it made me think to myself. And then when I got to the shanty towns of Soweto and Durban and every place else, and I was like, wow, I have no excuse. People don't have running water. So, so my little project experience, I couldn't even complain about it. So what I'm trying to get young people to see is that even if you have a challenge, it is a challenge that you can overcome. It is a challenge that you can fight through. It is a history, once you know it, that you can embrace, hopefully, and then say, oh, yeah, such and such. I have a reference point for how to get navigate the situation because I know such and such did as well. So I'm hoping that when we talk to young, young people about the, our history, we can share some of those lessons for them as well. As we turn the corner mm -hmm. on COVID-19 and you look forward uh, through 21, what are you most hopeful for? Oh, the simple things. I'm hopeful. I, I just want to go outside without a mask one day. <laughs> like, I was like, can we just breathe some fresh air for a minute without a mask? But um, but no, I guess, you know, it's funny. I, I, I do miss like large crowds a little bit, I have to say. I was walking through the city the other day and I was like, there's nobody here. It's like no one in the red, like no one in Times Square, no one. Um, so it's so interesting. You miss the small things, the things I would complain about, I guess, uh, are the things I'm going to miss that I feel like I miss now. Uh, but I do look forward to just kind of having simple collegiality with people, like, you know, not feeling like so worried about all the things that COVID has brought. Um, and, and hopefully having a meal and, you know, just talking to people in, 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 in a group setting without feeling like, you know, there's going to be some challenge health-wise. So those are the small things, but those are really the big things, I think, at the same time. Final question. Mm -hmm. What keeps you up at night? I think, oh gosh, so much keeps me up at night, Lewis, to be honest. But, <laughs> but I would say, um, you know, what, what really, what keeps me up at night, I think that really matters. Um, Cause sometimes, you know, it could be a work thing, but I think the stuff that really matters that keeps me up um, are the things that, um, that I, 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 I have witnessed or I see and I know exists, particularly for young, for young kids. I think, you know, this notion of um, people not feeling loved fully, people who are abused, you know, challenges that, you know, people don't have enough food to eat, just all these, these simple life things that are really um, life-changing circumstances. I oftentimes get, uh, I, I will say extra prayers because I feel like, you know, there's more that I can do. And, I, and I'm always trying to find the next big thing that I can do or the next thing I can, can participate in or collaborate on. But I do think you know, the human stories actually keep me up at night when I hear things about, you know, how humanity suffers ultimately. I think that that's the thing that that really, you know, sends me to a place where I have to really go deep and pray and ask for protection um, for humanity. So I would say that's probably the biggest thing that keeps me up at night. Khadija, this has been amazing. Uh, your story, your answers, uh, your advice, uh, I think is very, very timely. Uh, for the environments uh, we live in today. So I want to thank you so much for taking out time uh, to be with us. And uh, I'm going to thank you from the Waymaker community uh, as we sort of build this community uh, to be Waymakers, but also to serve people who need Waymakers. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. And have a great day. Thank you, Louis. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Khadija Sharif Drinker. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. 
And don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at waymakerjournal.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode.